Welcome, friends, to The Flower of the Cedar, a novel in episodic podcast form. We are about to start the next chapter. Come, join us. Chapter 8 The Gesh It happened three days later. The day before they had observed the day of gentling, and the ruby brew Jan again gathered for them had taken ambers and chocolates into it. Lara tried to listen to its taste, but again upon finishing she could not place it among sweet, sour, or savoury. When she ate of it, she thought she saw clear streams and heard the cries of stringed instruments. Sometime during the last watches of that night, Lara woke abruptly. Had someone called her? She glanced to Jan beside her, who was sleeping with a vague mutter in her breath. Perhaps she had trimmed it. She could not recall any dreams. She lay down again, but sleep had fled. After some time had passed in wakefulness, she sat up, possessed of a geish. She had to find the cavern's entrance. The moon had waned a good deal since the night she saw Jan's hearts. Its light guided little, but at her feet in the grass she saw tiny light heartsies. It is not their season, she thought, scattered in a swath that led to the fields away from tree cover. She began to follow it. When she had gone a half mile or more, she realized she was wearing a familiar smock, one she had worn as a child in her mother's garden. Its laces pulled uncomfortably at her shoulders, for it was, of course, far too small for her now. She thought it might be. Yes. Across its front hem and up to where her knees would have been when it fit, dark earth stains covered the fabric. This was the smock she had worn the day she buried her heart. She looked up in fear and wonder, and there before her the earth opened. A crack of darkness laid bare, leading back into a cavern. She must enter. She did not want to enter. The rules of this night had not been set by her, and she must play them out 
Ducking her head, she stepped into the black. Almost immediately there fell upon her a great fear of the narrow places beneath the crust of the earth, an awareness of brown weight bearing down inexorably, thick blankets of it, boulders and burdens beyond her power to carry. She found her shoulders rising to hunch about her ears and her arms grasping at each other. Her small bones and frail covering flesh seemed brittle, thin. She knew if that hovering heaviness chose to fall on her, her eyes would grow dark, and life would be flattened from her body. You are at the mercy of these wants, she suddenly remembered Jan saying. Her feet, which were bare, splashed into a puddle of tepid underground moisture, scummed with some mold or fungus. She shuddered, and in that moment, now perhaps a mile beneath the earth and walking steadily down the sharp grade of the cavern, she thought she was most truly what she had always been. The threatening bulk above her. Her insufficient strength to match it. Was it the weight of the god? The goddess? That unknown power in the packed soil? Was it rather, she thought, rubbing her palms on the stained smock, all the momentum and dirty power of her own hates, terrors, ugly selfishnesses? What word could contain all these pulls upon her, these wants, before whose scant mercy she lay bare. The image of Jan, kneeling, opened to the god, flashed out at her. She still felt fear at that vulnerability, but now a bleak thought struck her. She was already that vulnerable, only not to the goddess. And this dense, abhorrent mass of earth. She put a hand out hesitantly to touch the clammy sides of the cave, and threads of roots or something else slunk over her skin. This had no kindness for her. It was faceless. She remembered that warm, terrible illumination in the clearing, the half-heard rumble of the god's voice. She had sensed no safety in it, as she did not sense it here. But she had sensed care. The air was damp, almost humid, like summer before a storm. Her nostrils filled with a sharp, metallic smell. Suddenly, the packed earth beneath her feet slipped muddy and dropped away. She fell, screamed a beast's panic aloud. 
The sound was swallowed by the haunting, silent earth. The drop was perhaps five, six feet, but she landed wrong. Her left ankle bent in an angle unintended, and the pain throttled her. Her clothing slapped wetly against the backs of her legs. The mud of the drop had saturated it. She whimpered, feeling for her way forward, refusing to consider what, if any, way back remained to her after that sheer slip of a fall. Then she stopped, frozen in terror. The roof of the cavern sloped down, meeting the walls, diving to the floor. Just before it touched, a narrow opening led into the earth. Its passage was barely the width of her body, and she did not know if it ever led out into a wider space. How would she turn to come back? The darkness was absolute, and she had for some time subsisted solely on tactile sensation, but her array of mental images was fertile. She saw herself wedged in a moist crack in the earth, a wet, toothless mouth clamped on her poor body until she had no space for her lungs to draw in breath, and she died alone. She knew it would be slow. She tried for a handful of terrible hours to climb back to the upper tunnels. She could not. Blood mixed with the dirt now covering her. Her limbs shivered and seized with weakness. The mouth waited. But she scrabbled herself into a corner away from it and remained there, immobile, staring, until her body shut her down into sleep. Hours passed, and a day, before she woke up, filthy, in the same darkness, facing the same crack, and the gash upon her. Her ankle burnt with soured pain. She blinked, then withered, a sickly wave of pity rolling over her, into her, and without realizing it, she began stroking herself with her bloody hands. Poor Lara, she rasped, thin from a throat dry of water. No one tells her. No one comes for her. They all leave her alone. She shuttled through the faces of her parents, the peddler woman, Jan and her family, Nena, the children. She spat on them. Mm -hmm.
From within the earth mouth, a pale light hovered, approaching Lara's fetal body slowly. It stung her eyes when it reached them, but it made her uncurl, distracted her from her self-caresses. She thought it was like the god's moonlight, and yet unlike This light was not so full, and also had more of the sun's glimmer on water, less of rich cream. And when it spoke, she could discern the words. You must come in. We are waiting for you. Where, she said, who are you? You must come in the narrow way. Lara pushed herself up reluctantly onto her forearm, then rolled up to her palms. The light was already receding into the crack, and she found herself more afraid of being returned to darkness than she was of the tight space, of the risk to her life and safety. She had no route of return, And she thought, with weariness, that she did not gamble much in chancing death. What did she have? Had her parents felt relieved when they saw her empty bed? She hugged the pity around her and started numbly squeezing herself into the muddy hole. Dark pressure on all sides, pushing her bones down and in, slime from the walls and the exaggerated drum of her heartbeat. What? She stopped. She wrestled her right arm forward, moving the elbow back and forth in the cramped space until she could hold it in front of her. She pressed the palm flat against her chest. Nothing. Had she imagined it? The panicked beating? When she at last tasted fresh air and the dimmest of lights, when she shoved her body forward with her legs and oozed out of the tunnel like a newborn slick with fluids, she was crying heavily. Her tears so blinded her that it was some time before she was sensible of her strange surroundings. It was the wind that first woke her to where she lay. All the length of her underground passage had been uncomfortably warm, and she had sweat mingling with the blood and soil covering her. 
When she came out, cool airs brushed her, and the very sweat she had loathed welcomed the wind's cooling into her skin, able to attract it as dry skin cannot. She took a single, juddering breath. Then she smelled the flowers. If it had not been for the flowers, she would have thought she was indoors, in a clear, high-ceilinged space. Oh, blessed space! Fragrant, but walled. Yet the flowers grew on bushes, on vines, spreading over the ground among glossy leaves, mostly wild but bearing some signs of cultivation. Soon she realized that the place she had come into was like a cave, with an earthen floor and smooth rock rising two feet from the ground before shifting, clearing, shedding its dark colors and taking on the quality of milky crystal. Into this material had been worked delicate branching patterns of flowers. Possibly, she limped cautiously up to the nearest ones, by drawing amethysts, jade, sapphires, onyx, and the like, into the rock, the way the hin oils were drawn into the skin for the marriage arts. The workmanship held exquisite love. Nearly hidden by blossoms and leaves, pale pillars leapt up to the arched ceiling at intervals of some yards, set back into the walls, and often fitted with lattice work for the vines. She tried to follow the line of them to the back of the space, but was thwarted by the light, brightened in its recesses so that the far wall, if there was one, was hidden. She could not bear that light directly. So she turned back to those things nearest her. A soft, rosy radiance lit the backs of her hands. She tilted her head back, brushing fouled hair from her eyes, and saw, strung among the pillars and nooks of the ceiling, tiny lanterns hung from filaments like spiders' webs. She stepped back, all the beauty in its freshness, after that grotesque time in the mud tunnel, smote her. She wanted it. Had she ever wanted anything as she wanted this? A strong-stemmed rose just up the way nodded a full red goblet of petals at her. Dewy, new. She looked to see if she was alone, went to it, and reached for it. She had touched the petals first for their velvet, then grasped the stem to pick it before dropping her hand with a dismayed cry. Its blossom blurred with the mud and sweat from her hand, and she had bruised some of its growth. When she looked back the way she had come, 
She saw the dirt of her passage scuffed into the delicate grasses that grew thick on the ground. Ordinary gardens can bear imperfections in their beauty, but here the marring was hideously out of place. It was the childish vindictiveness she had embraced against Jan's kindness and sacrifice. It was... She was suddenly, piercingly sorry for her existence. The light was growing, and she was increasingly aware of the filth that now seemed etched into every stitch of her, under her broken fingernails, rubbed into her scalp. Her very eyelids felt heavy with grit, and she knew in that light that these were all made by her, the grime of her bitternesses, hatreds, selfishnesses. She had blood matted in her hair from stroking it when she had curled in self-pity upon herself. Tears had cleansed her cheeks alone. The rest she had made. Someone was coming. Could she hide? Where could she hide all this ugliness with the light coming on stronger? She even thought of going back into the cramped, dirty dark of that hole and had run awkwardly to it despite the pains. She had set her hands on its lip when the voice called her name. She was already seen. Too late to hide now. I am sorry, I'm so sorry, I... She stammered and felt a sudden gentle weight about her neck. She looked up into a face sharp and soft with light. It seemed masculine, and like an animal, its skin did not need clothing to be complete. He had just dropped his arms. Were those patterns like the marriage arts on his forearms? He had clasped a necklace round her neck. She lifted its pendant in confusion, but her eyes were too muddled with tears to read the writing there. It is from the goddess, he said, and she recognized his voice from the tunnel. You are to come further in. We have something that belongs to you. I'm sorry, she said, pointing behind her as he motioned her forward. So sorry, I'm sorry. It was a smile on his lips, she realized. I know, dear heart. Bring it with you. But be prepared to let it fall. I yet have hope for the ones who are ashamed on my doorstep. The 
The sensation of open space increased as she passed from the nave of flowers through an archway hung with material so thin and light she barely felt it whisper over her skin. She felt, too, her shame increase, her awareness of the grime and ugliness she carried. Had she thought any part of her lovely, well-formed, the stately tapering of her own ankles, wrists, and hands had once pleased her. She remembered a morning in her room, turning her hands before her in the fresh light, feeling stabs of pride over herself. And what of her nursed cares held so unquestioningly, so preciously close to her, the hurts done to her that she rehearsed, and remembered the monumental foolishness this seemed to her now could scarcely be expressed. What was she made of but filth? The dragging dirt of her underground passage had not needed to sink into her skin. It was already there. Her guide had not spoken since that last word, doorstep. When he had last halted her before another gently curtained entryway, he stepped through, and she stood miserable, ready to flee. But a moment later, his voice and another's said, Come. She had been divided in that last place between the feeling of walls and ceiling and the verdure of the outdoor world. Here, she was overwhelmed with the impression of open air, horizons, sweeping distance. She may have come here by deep tunnels under the earth, but she knew no doubt that she was now outside, touched by airs no walls had held in. And the sensation of being seen, terribly, horribly seen, her toes curled hard into the earth, and she pulled her arms into herself with her fists against her cheeks, looking down at the knuckles. The shamed and found out know the feeling. Who would describe it? All the dark hiding places of the earth had gone, and open light spread around her. She hated everything, and herself most of all. Who are you who comes here? The being who thus addressed her sat neatly folded in the grasses beside her guide. It had lilies anointing its shoulders. She thought it neither female nor dryadic, though it approached both, seeming to hold them up before her as a familiar likeness to comfort her with it. Another being rested to its other side, a child 
grave with wisdom and bathed with hilarity. He was curling and uncurling his toes, looking at her with kindness. Who are you who comes here? repeated the first being from among its lilies. Lara whispered something into her knuckles, humiliated. No one, said the child aloud. She says she is no one. Why could she not turn and run or curl up here? She stood immobile before these easy, seated creatures. The lily one lifted two cupped hands. In them was earth, a depression scooped out of it, and tumbled there among the browns of soil lay a heart seed, tender and petaled, warm. Lara cried out. She caught herself on her knees and she scrambled away from the heart she had been seeking. It is not for me, she choked. We have something that belongs to you, her guide said again. The shining from his limbs was difficult for her. She pulled at the lank, wet tangle that was her hair, shaking fistfuls at the waiting creatures, fistfuls of her hate, selfishness, fear. You do not understand how ugly I am, she shouted. Despite the weight of seeing and knowledge, that came from their silent expressions. They understood. She meant, you could not, or you would not offer me my heart. Who would give a heart into the hands of ugliness? The goddess commands it, said the shining one. She cannot know, she said. She cannot know. She has written her knowledge about your neck, said the shining one. The child rose and walked to her. Her terror and self-loathing flared up at his approach. His hands took the pendant and turned it to her so she could see the letters there. Dark am I, yet lovely. But this is not mine, she protested. This is not mine. She gave it to me. She put it on me. And therefore yours, the three said. The lily one stood beside her, holding the heart seed to Lara's lips. You must eat it with the soil, and it will not carry bitterness past your tongue. I am too ugly, Lara whispered, dirty fingers covering her mouth. You are very ugly, the child laughed, and you are the beautiful one of your beloved. 
the three stood before her. Her heart was at her lips. Why are you beautiful? cried the shining one. But I am not, she thought to say, stubborn. It was true and not true. Yet it was not hers to say. She knelt and pressed her hands to the earth in a sudden, illuminating humility. Because she has named me beautiful, she said. Then she tipped back her head in submission and received her heart. The Flower of the Cedar is written, produced, and published by me, Kay Ben-Avraham. This content is made possible by the support of my patrons on Patreon. We make monthly pledges they can increase, decrease, or cancel at any time. If you are enjoying listening, please consider supporting my work on Patreon. Even a dollar a month makes a great difference to a struggling author. For those of you wishing to support this work in non-monetary fashion, you can tell a friend about the podcast or leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help ratings rise so that other people can find it. Thank you so much. <laughs>